0: All right, we will go ahead and get started. So we'll begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I'll begin by praying Psalm 134. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord through the long hours of night. Lift up your hands toward the sanctuary and bless the Lord. May the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So last week, I talked about sort of the architecture of a church, and this week now, we will move into the actual parts of the Mass. And today, we will deal with the introductory rites. So, broadly speaking, you will hear people divide the Mass into two parts. You have the Liturgy of the Word, and you have the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And that is fine, but you can actually subdivide the Mass a little bit more into um, various, more parts. And one of those is the introductory rites. So the introductory rites begin with the entrance antiphon, or the entrance hymn, as we will see. And they go all the way through the opening prayer, called the collect. So basically, as soon as you stand, start singing until you sit down. Those are what are called the introductory rites. So... The purpose of the introductory rites are preparation. They are preparing you for the most holy sacrifice of the Mass for the Eucharist, because you will be in the presence of God momentarily when you walk into Mass, right? And so it is preparing you for that, and it also has what is called a mystagogical element. And that is a fancy word which keeps academics employed that means, in Greek, to lead into the mystery mystagogy lead into the mystery and so the introductory rite is designed to help you into enter into the mystery of the mass to enter into the presence of god now i'm going to assume that you agree with me that the mass is a mystery right otherwise i don't think you would be here you'd be doing something else on your wednesday night so I think that's a given, the Mass is a mystery. But we should understand what is meant when we talk about the Mass as a mystery, because the classical definition of a mystery, which is the one I am using, is not the same as the modern world. We often think of something mysterious which is unintelligible. We cannot understand it, and we may even say it's not possible to understand. That's mysterious. That is not what is meant by a mystery in the classical and theological sense. A mystery in the classical sense is when something is so intelligible, it has so much being, that it transcends our limited intellect. So God is a mystery, not because he is unreasonable, not because he himself cannot understand himself, he does understand himself, but because he is an infinite being and he transcends our intellect, we cannot fully grasp him. He overflows in what the philosophers would call intelligibility. And so the mystery component of the mass is we are, through the mass, entering into the heavenly worship of God, and that transcends what we can grasp here on earth. God willing, Someday we will understand that more fully when we are singing with the angels and the saints in heaven. But for now, we know that we are participating in the heavenly liturgy because the book of Revelation is clearly telling us that, but we can't fully grasp it. It transcends our intelligence. And so the introductory rites are helping us enter into that mystery, the mystery of God, the mystery of heaven, and the mystery of the worship of the angels and the saints in heaven. Okay? So remember that. Preparation, enter into the mystery. I'll keep returning to those. And one of the things which serves this purpose is silence. And I have here under number two a quote from the general instruction for the Roman Missal. And if you remember from last week, the Roman Missal is the book which usually sits on the altar or which the servers hold for me. It's my prayer book. And at the beginning of the prayer book, because the Catholic Church always does this because cardinals and bishops need to be employed, they put a certain instructions on how to use the book, the general instruction for the Roman Missal. So it's telling you how to use the missile. And it says on silence, it says sacred silence also has part of the celebration. So silence is part of the mass, is to be observed at designated times. Its nature, however, depends on the moment when it occurs in the different parts of the celebration. For in the penitential act, and I'll get to silence there, And again, after the invitation to pray, and I'll get to that as well, individuals recollect themselves. Think, individuals prepare themselves. Individuals prepare themselves to enter into the mystery of God. And then it says, down a paragraph, even before the celebration itself, it is a praiseworthy practice for silence to be observed in the church, in the sacristy, in the vesting room, etc., so that all may dispose themselves to carry out the sacred celebration in a devout and fitting manner. So what they're saying is, it takes work to enter into the mystery of the mass. And so we have to gather ourselves, right? You think about athletes, I was a baseball player. They're the most notorious breakers of the first commandment because they are the most superstitious athletes that I've ever met. They have rituals, right? They go through a process to get themselves ready to play right that is what sacred silence before mass is supposed to be you're supposed to gather yourself because there's all the chaos in the world you're worried about your water bill your electric bill the roof leaking whatever it may be and you have to gather yourself you have to sort of calm down and prepare to enter into the mystery of god and the mass and the first way we do that is with silence right And I know that's hard because we don't like silence, but I am reminded, I mentioned this in the homily last weekend, my old spiritual director, my first one that I ever had in seminary, he used to always tell me that silence is God's first language and everything else is a poor translation. So we have to learn to be comfortable with silence and to gather ourselves, to recollect ourselves. So silence does it first. The priest prepares as well, and this is, extraordinarily difficult for a priest because he has so many things so many irons in the fire as they are called that he has to gather himself as well and that's why you often walk into the sacristy and the priest is praying he's praying his preparatory prayers he's gathering himself he knows he's about to touch the lord and enter into the heavenly liturgy and he has to prepare himself with silence with prayer okay then the mass begins and it begins with the entrance chant and so once again the general instruction for the Roman Missal, this is a B on page one, it says, when the people are gathered, hopefully lots of people, right, have gathered, and as the priest enters with the deacon and ministers, the entrance chant begins, and then notice its purpose. It is to open the celebration, because you've got to start somewhere, it is to foster unity, of those who have been gathered. It is to introduce their thoughts to the mystery of the liturgical time or festivity. Introduce, prepare, mystery, and accompany the procession of the priests and ministers. So there's a clear preparatory element. It's sort of a transition. You've been out in the world. You've been running around. You've gathered yourself in silence. And now we are going to begin to enter into the presence of God. And we're going to do that with the entrance chant. Notice also it's fostering unity All of us come together to worship God and to partake of the one Lord Jesus Christ. And by singing or chanting together, that is sort of a mark of that unity. I know in seminary, at the beginning of the year when we would recite the Liturgy of the Hours, you do it um, in the manner of a choir where you go back and forth. And at the beginning of the year, the house, the seminary, does it very, very badly. We're kind of disjointed and everybody's off. But by the end of the year, we get used to praying with one another. We have a cadence. And what's funny is if you go to a different seminary on vacation, they have a different cadence. And you mess them up and they mess you up. You learn to pray together as a community. That bonds us together. So notice that. Okay, entrance chant. There are four options in the United States. The first is maybe the one that you're least familiar with. It is the Antiphon from the Missal, that's the book I use, remember, or the Antiphon with its psalm from the Graduale Romanum has set to music there or in another setting. So at both St. Mary's and St. Francis Cabrini, we recite the entrance Antiphon before. That can be chanted. And it can be chanted in a manner where it goes back and forth between the cantor and the people gathered. That's how we begin mass at the seminary. The entrance antiphon. And it's actually the most preferred option. And the reason for that, if you flip to page two, is because the antiphon is attached to the mass and comes from sacred scripture. So every mass in Lent has its own specific antiphon. And more often than not, it comes from sacred scripture. So it's the word of God. So that makes it preferred. The second reason why it's the most preferred option was the Second Vatican Council emphasized in their document on the liturgy, which is there in B, the importance of Gregorian chant. Right? It says the church acknowledges Gregorian chant, specially suited to the Roman liturgy. It talks about how it's given pride of place. And then it permits other kinds of music, especially polyphony, which is just another form of chant. So the Second Vatican Council wanted to reemphasize Gregorian chant. The antiphon would be chanted. The antiphon comes from sacred scripture, and the antiphon is attached specifically to the mass. Those three things make it the first option The second option, which is lowercase b halfway down page two, is the antiphon and the psalm of the graduale simplex for the liturgical time. So notice option one and option two are the antiphon. They come from two different books. There is what's called the graduale romanum and the graduale simplex. Both of them are liturgical books, song books essentially, that have various chant notations. The Graduale Romanum is quite difficult. I never sang from it in seminary, although they tried to get me to. The Graduale Simplex, as the name sounds simple, is the simple one. So option one and option two are the antiphon. Option three is C there. It says a chant from another collection of psalms and antiphons approved by the Conference of Bishops or the Diocesan Bishop, including psalms, et cetera. So you notice the church's logic here. They're saying option one is the antiphon, because it's Gregorian chant, which the Second Vatican Council preferred, because it's from sacred scripture, and because it's specifically attached to the mass. And then they say, but if you don't want to use the antiphon, then you can use another antiphon in psalm, or chant from a collection of psalms and antiphons, because it's still the word of God, and it's still chant, it's just not attached to the mass. So it's a good option, but it's not quite as good because it's not attached specifically to the mass. And then you have number four, which is hymns. That's what we're most familiar with. That's letter D, another liturgical chant, think hymns, that is suited to the sacred action, the day or the time of the year. So you should sing a hymn that, if you're going to sing a hymn, you should sing a hymn that is appropriate for the time. So you wouldn't sing angels are heard on high in Lent. That would be weird. There would be what we would say, liturgical lack of integrity. But hymns are option number four. Okay. E right there just mentions if there is no singing, like at daily masses, I just walk out and recite the antiphon right from the missal, that's what I'm doing. But I think we should talk more about hymns, because I just said hymns are number four. I know many of you like hymns, and we sing a lot of hymns, so here's a history essentially of the hymns. So hymns... The reason they are the least preferred is due to the fact that they replace the actual texts of the mass. So when hymns started to become popular, largely in Protestant circles after the Reformation, the church resisted them. And the reason they resisted them is because they said, well, wait a minute. The antiphon is attached to the mass. So why would we replace that with something else? And so you see at the bottom of page two and the top of page uh, three, you have what's called a note from the Holy See. And you know you're dealing with somebody who has too much time on their hands when they start quoting notes from the Holy See, but that's what I'm doing. And this is what Paul VI, remember, this is post council. Paul VI is still hesitant about hymns. This is what he says. He says, what must be sung is the Mass. It's ordinary and proper, not something, no matter how consistent that is imposed on the Mass. So you see what he's worried about. He's worried about you remove the antiphon and you impose something else on the Mass. And he says... To continue to replace the texts of the Mass is to cheat the people. That is strong words, especially in Paul VI. Thus, texts must be those of the Mass, not others. And singing means singing the Mass, not just singing during the Mass. So he doesn't want singing for the sake of singing. He wants us to sing the parts of the Mass, the antiphon. He's very, very worried about hymns. And if you think about it, because it sounds harsh, but think about what happened spiritually in Genesis. Go all the way back to Genesis. You had Adam and Eve, created in the image and likeness of God, and they are tempted. And notice their temptation. Their temptation was to be like God's. That's a temptation of pride. That's a temptation of self-deification. And so ever since then, the church has been extraordinarily concerned about us trying to sort of usurp God, trying to grasp for the divine nature. And so what Paul VI is saying is, well, wait a minute, guys. If we take a part of the mass that comes from sacred scripture and we remove it with a hymn that a human wrote, we have said that the words of a human are more important than the words of God. We've gone back to Genesis and we have fallen. That's what he's worried about. So it has a very important spiritual point so, he's warning, etc. However, the reason we sing hymns is because ultimately the Second Vatican Council and the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops permitted it. They said, okay, they said, we know that people want to sing hymns because the entrance antiphon can be difficult and it takes time, and in Gregorian chant is not natural, you're not trained in it, etc. So, they allow. Musicum Sacrum, which is the Second Vatican Council's document on the music, there B on page three, it says that by indults, by special permission, you can substitute other songs for the songs given in the graduale for the entrance, etc. So the Second Vatican Council says it's okay, it's an option, if it's approved by the local Conference of Bishops, which the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, does permit. So, that is why we can sing hymns. However, Vatican II then, going back to the Second Vatican Council, they have certain rules of music. It's not just any hymn. You're not supposed to walk in and sing anything that you want. They have certain guidelines, right? And you notice those in 1, 2, 3, and 4. It says the purpose of sacred music, which is the glory of God and the sanctification of the faithful. So, Everything which we do, ultimately, should be for the glory of God and for the sanctification of the faithful. But it's especially true during Mass. And so hymns should foster those two things if we are going to use them. The Second Vatican Council also wanted to reaffirm the treasury of sacred music. Hymns, although they were not commonly used during Mass had been written over the years. You think of the Adorote written by St. Thomas Aquinas and various other hymns, the Te Teum. And the Second Vatican Council saying those hymns are venerable. They're part of our tradition. We should preserve them, we should use them, we should hand them on. Think about what you guys often do to your kids. You hand on family traditions, you hand on family knowledge, you hand on family ways of doing things. You think of how many years the trades were handed down. That's what we have to do liturgically. We have to teach our kids in the next generation how to pray, which means they should know the Catholic hymns, the hymns which my grandmother sang. She delights when she hears those hymns at Mass, and I learn them. It also, number three, says that the texts intended to be sung, the hymns, they must be in conformity with Catholic doctrine. So you may remember a couple years ago, I think it was a couple years ago. It may have been less. You lose track of time in seminary because you're kind of in an island, so you're just out there. The The days are long and the years are short, as we say. Or maybe it's vice versa. Depends, I guess. But a while back, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops released a list of hymns which can no longer be used. The reason they did that was some of those hymns had lyrics that were contrary to Catholic teaching. And so we don't wanna get those stuck in our head because it's like a subliminal message against Catholicism. So the bishop said, you can't sing these hymns. And I can't remember which hymns they are. I'm sure the, the musical people would know. And then finally, number four, When it comes to musical instruments, which would accompany these hymns, the Second Vatican Council also laid down some things. They reaffirmed that the pipe organ is to be held in high esteem, and notice why, and I love this because I love the pipe organ. It adds a wonderful splendor to the church's ceremony and powerfully lifts up man's mind to God and to higher things. So think back, the glorification of God and the salvation of souls. The pipe organ has something that's transcendent about it. You might find this fascinating. Two weeks ago, I was actually crawling around in our pipe organ, which is right behind that screen. It is the last Schaefer organ. Many of you know the Schaefer Organ Company out of Slinger. That organ behind me is actually the last Schaefer organ ever installed in a church. St. Mary's also has a Schaefer organ from 1931, and Holy Angels has a Schaefer organ, and that Schaefer was sort of the Whole, um, Schaefer Organ Par Excellence. So all three parishes have a local organ company. So they bought local. So it's pretty cool. And this organ back here is is awesome. There's a thousand pipes. There's big what are called trumpet pipes. Um, so if you come to the Candlelight Mass, if I may give myself a self-plug, on the Feast of St. Joseph, I promise you, you will hear the organ, and I hope that it lifts your mind up to God and to higher things. So the pipe organ... The Second Vatican Council, going on to page four, does permit other instruments, but it says they must be proper to the sacredness of the liturgy. They don't want secular instruments being used at Mass. And the reason for that is remember what the word sacred means in its Greek and Hebrew root. It means set apart. And so what the church always wants is for sacred things to be set apart. Think about what happens for you at baptism. You are set apart from everything else because you become a child of God. That gives you a dignity. It gives you an honor. It gives you an abundance of grace. You are set apart. You are sacred. And so the church says sacred music should be music which is set apart for God. Sacred instruments should be instruments which are set apart by and large, for God, okay? So that's the entrance, antif- uh, entrance as we process in, right? You have the antiphon, or you have hymns, essentially, okay? So we would process in. People are singing the entrance antiphon or the hymn. We come to the foot of the altar. We genuflect to the tabernacle, and then the priest comes up, and he venerates the altar. And whenever you hear the term venerate the altar, that means he kisses the altar, so the general instruction says when they have arrived at the sanctuary, the priest, the deacon, and the ministers reverence the altar with a profound bow. We genuflect because the tabernacle is there. Moreover, as an expression of veneration, the priest and the deacon, both ordained members, then kiss the altar itself. To this day, I remember the first time I kissed the altar as a deacon. So and then it says, if appropriate. And in my opinion, it's always appropriate, as many of you know. The priest incenses the cross and the altar. I will notice this. Sometimes you will see me, somebody asked me this, that I mutter certain things during mass. What I am muttering, I'm not losing my mind. Well, I probably am losing my mind, but that's, the muttering is not a manifestation of that. There are other manifestations probably of me losing my mind. But what I'm doing is I'm praying just certain devotional prayers. And when I come to kiss the altar, I say, my Lord and my rock strengthen me. And then I kiss the altar. The reason we venerate the altar, you may remember this from last week, is the altar is an image of Christ or as the order of the dedication of an altar says, the altar is Christ. It is that upon which we offer sacrifice just like Christ upon the cross. Christ was both what he offered to God the Father and his humanity and himself was sort of the altar upon which he offered his love, his obedience, etc. And so we kiss the altar it's a sign of reverence. I gave you two, uh, a scripture verse there. Paul in Romans says, greet one another with a holy kiss. You see, you see this still sometimes in European countries. It's a sign of affection and a sign of reverence. The reason why I pray what I pray is Christ is often called the rock, right? The, the rock. You see it all the time in the Psalms. That's one of the reasons why the altar is supposed to be immovable, because Christ is a firm rock. He doesn't move on us, right? And so I say, my Lord and my rock strengthen me, and then I kiss the altar, that's how I begin Mass. And then, my trustworthy servers come upon my right, and they hand me the incense boat, which is what carries the incense, and what is called the thurible, or the incenser. And we incense the altar, and incense stands for a couple things at Mass. One, first and foremost, it stands for our prayers, right? You see Revelation 8.4, and the smoke of incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. So, when you see clouds, sometimes it can be like pillars, right? It's more than just clouds arising that should remind you that you should be praying to God. You should be lifting your heart and your mind to God. The thing incensing also does is when I incense all the way around the altar, it sets the altar apart for worship. It consecrates it, right? Imagine it being sort of surrounded and now it's set apart. And so I am preparing the altar for what it's meant to be, which is that upon which Jesus Christ will offer himself to God the Father under the appearance of bread and wine. In the old Mass, the 1962 Mass, there was a prayer which you said while you incensed, and you would also say, why well, you imposed incense. And I can't remember the prayer exactly. It's in Latin. But I remember the gist of it. And what it references is something that's extraordinarily beautiful about incense. If you think about that charcoal and you think about those little rocks of incense, they have one purpose in life. They're consumed entirely for the worship of God. That charcoal is not going back to my Weber grill to make steak, right? It's being consumed at mass. That incense rock, is being consumed at Mass. Its whole existence is given up to the glory of God at Mass. That's what we should be. We should be wholly consumed, wholly inflamed by divine love, that all that we do arises as worship to God. So, remember that when you see me imposing incense. You should be like that charcoal, inflamed by the Holy Spirit, letting off a sweet odor of virtue and worship to God. When I incense, I pray silently to myself. I ask that the Lord may, that our prayer may arise like incense in, our, in, um, in his sight. I pray that he may purify our hearts and minds, that our prayers may be worthy and acceptable to him. When I incense the cross, I pray that through the blood of the cross, we may reach the heavenly liturgy. Um, sometimes I pray other things, but those are the things that I'm thinking about as I incense. Um, so you incense the altar. Alright, we're at the 27-minute mark, so I will pause, we'll take a five-minute break, and then we will come back and finish the rest of the entrance rites. So we are on page four, letter D, and so we've, walked, we've processed in, you've been singing a bit, I've venerated the altar, I have incense, I go over to the chair, and then we begin. And as you all know, we begin as we always should in the sign of the cross. That does a few things. One is it recalls the three persons of the Trinity. We are entering into Trinitarian worship. So immediately we think of the three persons of the Trinity. It also recalls, and you see this on page 5a up there, that it is through the cross that we have access into this heavenly worship, right? Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross. So we recall the three persons of the Trinity, and we recall that it is through Christ's offering of himself on the cross that we can even come to Mass and enter into that heavenly worship. And then we greet the people, right? Or I greet the people. And that emphasizes that God is in our midst, because notice there's three options for the greeting, and all of them emphasize the fact that God is present among us. So where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We're reminding ourselves we're in the presence of God, right? And as I mentioned, there's three options. The first one, A there, comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's option one. And the priest makes the standard gesture, right, of hands opening and closing. The second one comes from Romans 1.7, again from Paul, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the first one also reinforces the Trinity. The second one emphasizes peace, the peace which Christ has won for us by the blood of his cross. And the third one, which is the one I always use, Dominus Vobis, the Lord be with you. And that is sort of a standard scripture greeting. So those three are the three options. Then after that, you say it with your spirit, which is another standard scriptural um, statement, we have the penitential rite. So again, the purpose of the introductory rites are to prepare us to enter into the presence of God. And so we have this penitential rite. It's a key component to it. And so we prepare to meet our God, right? And I say, brothers and sisters or brethren, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. There's the word mysteries. There's the word prepare. I'm saying let's call to mind our sinfulness. And then the rubrics say that we should have a moment of silence there. I'm usually bad because I get rolling liturgically and then I just don't stop, right? Right. But we should have silence because we should actually call to mind our sins. When I say that, I'm being serious. I'm not saying let us acknowledge our sins, but let's not actually do that. No, it's you should think to yourself, what are my sins? What sins am I sorry for? You kind of make a mini-examination of your conscience on the spot, things which are weighing your heart down that you want to be reconciled with God with before the Mass begins. All right, so silence. And then flipping to page six, notice something else something very, very scriptural. Whenever a human being in sacred scripture is placed in front of the infinite majesty of God, their first reaction is one of humility and one of acknowledgement of sin. So think of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 5. has just been lifted up into the throne, in front of the throne of God, and you have the cherubim and the seraphim, and they're chanting, holy, holy, Lord, God of hosts. And what does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. He acknowledges his own nothingness. He acknowledges his sinfulness. Think also of Peter in Luke 5, 8, when he sees our Lord do a miracle. And what does he do? He falls down at Jesus' knees and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So think about what we're doing at Mass. We're entering into the presence of God. We're entering into the infinite majesty of the glory of God, and we're, we should have this holy reaction, this one reverential fear where we say, Lord, I have sinned against you, and that's what we're doing here. We're preparing ourselves in the same way humans have always done it throughout sacred scripture. Then there are three options for this penitential rite. The first is called the confideor, And I begin it, right? I say, I confess to Almighty God. And then you guys join in. That prayer dates from the eighth century. Roughly the form which we have now, well, the form which they had in 1962 was from the 11th century. We paired it just a little bit in 69. But by and large, the form which we have now dates from that time period. So it's quite ancient. It's older in this country, right, by a lot. There's a second option, and ironically, you've probably never heard this option, and I had never heard it until one day somebody did it in seminary, and I was like, what is that? But option two, you see it on your page under number 4B there on page 6. The priest says, have mercy on us, O Lord. The people reply, for we have sinned against you. And then the priest says, show us, O Lord, your mercy, and grant us your salvation. So it's a dialogue once again, and that's option two, I've always thought someday I'm going to put it on a card and teach it to you, because it's an option, so we should know it. Um, Ironically, it's actually the easiest one to chant. The chant notation is pretty easy, and if I tell you something's easy to chant, it's easy to chant. So, You didn't have to laugh that loud. (laughs) But you're not wrong, as they used to say in seminary. Controversial, but based in fact, right? So that prayer, or that option B comes from two Psalms. Off the top of my head, I believe it's probably Psalm 51 and Psalm 85, it's two parts that they mush together. Um, so it's an option. The third option there, option C, is the invocations with the Kyrie eleison. So I occasionally use those. An example is you were sent to heal the contrite of heart, Lord have mercy. You came to call sinners, Christ have mercy. That's option three. So you have the I confess, You have the second option, or you have the third option there. And then at the end comes the absolution of the priest. So when we finish, I say, may Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Technically, the rubrics of the Mass don't say to sign yourself. That's a carryover from 1962, and I just naturally have done it. The reason you used to do it is to remind yourself that your sins are forgiven through the cross, right? This absolution is not the same as sacramental absolution. Sacramental absolution is what I give you in the confessional. That forgives mortal sins. This absolution is, suffices to forgive venial sins. So not mortal sins. You still have to come to me for confession. I'm sorry, but that's what you have to do. But venial sins, which kind of tug at your heart, that washes those away so that you can worthily approach the altar. All right. Then comes the Kyrie, or the Lord have mercy. The curie historically comes from the East. It was adopted from the East. And as I mentioned at the bottom of page six, it originally followed the litany of intercession recited by the deacon. What was that? So who here has been to Good Friday liturgy before? Anybody? <clears throat> so you know, on Good Friday, there are, oh, I should have checked I think 10 petitions, there was 11 during COVID, 10, I think. I remember I tried to chant them last year, it didn't work. But there's a bunch of petitions, which the deacon says. So there used to be a form of that at every Mass, it seems like, in the East. And then after that, they would do the curia. You may think, think of the universal petitions as we do them now, you know, Lord, hear our prayer, that used to exist at the beginning of Mass. Way, this is like 1,600, 1,700 years ago. And then they would do the curiae after that. Now we just do the curiae. So top of page seven. In old times, it was a triple-triple. It would be Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. That's a very Roman way of praying where it's like neurotic about just asking again and again and again. It emphasized pleading. This was the point. You're like pleading with, you're taking this seriously, like, Lord, seriously, have mercy on me, right? You're pleading with the Trinity because, Lord, have mercy, God the Father, Christ, have mercy, God the Son, Lord, have mercy. Or in Greek, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie, Lord, eleison, have mercy, Christe, Christ, eleison, have mercy, Kyrie eleison. The triple triple also referenced sort of the nine choirs of angels. It was to remind you that you're surrounded by angels. Now, in the current Mass, we have a simpler form. It's just, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, or as I like to do it, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. I like to use the Greek because it's kind of an ode to the East, to the Greeks, the Greek uh, right, where we originally got this from. So I think that's important. All right, and then we come to the Gloria. So that is number seven on page seven. The glory, of course, was intoned by the angels at the birth of Christ, glory to God in the highest. It is also extraordinarily ancient. It dates from the fifth century. It also comes from the East. The Latin form, which we have, dates to about the ninth century, where we kind of added, added it. Initially, in the Latin rite, in, in the West, it was only sung at the Christmas Mass at midnight, and then everybody liked it, so they kind of added it. They're like, well, Let's do it on Sundays. And they're like, well, we still like it. Let's do it on feasts, right? So it just added. So it's not sung at daily Mass even now, but it is sung on Sundays and solemnities and feasts. Theologically, it's supposed to be a continuation of the Curiae, right? So think of the Curiae, the Lord have mercy. Think of the penitential rite. Next time you pray the Gloria, think about what you're saying. You give thanks to God you give him praise, you give him glory, right? It's called a Gloria. And you're giving this to the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all are mentioned. So again, there's this Trinitarian element and it's adoration and praise and thanksgiving and all of these things. But then you also ask for mercy. So, early on in the penitential rites, you're merely asking for mercy. Now you're asking for mercy and also praising God and giving him thanksgiving. There's like an anticipation. It's like, Lord, we have sinned against you. We have asked you for mercy. We thank you for taking away our sins. And we know that you will hear our prayer because we come to you with a contrite heart. So, all of that's wrapped up into the Gloria. And so, you can see why it was so popular. It's an excellent prayer, right? Glory to God in the highest. Okay. The Collect, number eight. The Collect is the opening prayer. So I say, let us pray, and then the servers, because my servers are getting excellent, they're always ready to go. You notice there's almost no break. They're just, I just look at them. We've gotten to the point with some of them, I just look at them and they come over, it's great. It's it's magnificent, they're good servers. So I appreciate that, and I'm not just saying that because there's some servers here, but it helps the mass move. There's a caveat. I say, let us pray. The rubric tells me I'm supposed to have a period of silence, but I get rolling because that's how I am. So you're supposed to say, let us pray. And there's supposed to be a pause. And the reason for that is what the opening prayer is supposed to do. And it does a few things. It's called the collect because it's supposed to gather together all of the cares and concerns and intentions, which we all have. And that is why I I prayed in the Orans position. Imagine me like gathering together all of our prayers and I'm offering them to God on your behalf because that is my job as your priest. So we gather together our prayers. So when I say let us pray and then I pause, now I have to pause because I told you I should do it. So now I have to pause, I can't get out of it anymore. You have to hold me accountable. What you should do spiritually is you should call to mind an intention that you want to bring to God for the mass. Because what you will notice is God delights in answering your prayers that are made through the most holy sacrifice of the mass. And so when I say let us pray, call to mind something. Why? What are you at mass for? Is there something you would like from God? Are you giving thanksgiving to him for something? Have some sort of intention. We have a formal intention, which I am offering the mass for, but you also have your individual intentions that you should attach to me. That's the, that's the purpose, right? Attach those intentions to me. Do you want one of your kids to come back to mass? Do you want forgiveness of a sin? Are you confused with a life situation? Do you need discernment? Give God an intention. You're here. You might as well do that, right? So that's why I pause. And then I say the opening prayer. So the opening prayer is gathering all together our affections, our worries, but it's also sort of formalizing them. It's the church saying this is what the Mass is for as well. So during Lent, you notice they're all themed and they're Lenten themed. We're talking about penance, etc. And then I pray them. You will notice that the opening collect, it always ends once again in a Trinitarian way. Trinitarian means Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So if the prayer is directed to God the Father, I say through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever, Or as you notice on eight, it can end who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever, or the third option. Again, it's the Trinity is being called to mind constantly, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may ask, because this was a big deal a couple years ago, why we no longer say one God, one God forever and ever. Over time, the church has changed her theory, so to speak, on how to translate texts. So remember... The Roman Missal, which I use is a translation of the Latin. And the trend 40 years ago, 30 years ago, whenever they had been translating, was to have very loose translations. So instead of translating word for word, you sort of translate what they would say thought for thought, idea for idea. The danger of that is when you are the translator and you are doing that, you're sort of imposing your thoughts onto the text. and so. At first, the church had these pretty loose translations, and that included one God. In, I think it was 2002, Liturgium Authenticum, there was a document that said, no, we don't want the translator to get mixed up in imposing things on the text. Let's translate things pretty literally, as literally as we can. And so they went through and they retranslated the Missal. They're retranslating, they just did the Sacrament of Penance. That's why the Prayer of Absolution is a little different. And in Latin, there is no unus. There is no, it just says God forever and ever. So when they went back through, they removed the one because it wasn't there in the Latin and they were just translating more literally. All right. I mentioned there some of the gestures, the individual prayers united to the prayer of the church. I should mention many of the opening prayers, the opening collects, are extraordinarily ancient, like 4th to the 7th century. And... Let's see, I am at 12 minute mark left, so I will answer questions now here. So the question was, when I incense the altar, I have a certain form of how I do it, and is it prescribed? The answer is yes and no. In the 62 Mass, the old Mass before the Council, it was. In fact, at the very beginning of the 62 Missal, there is a picture of an altar, and there's all of these arrows, and it's extraordinarily precise, and you have certain swings. So when I was in seminary, we were taught to incense somewhat like that, and so that was just, it's a carryover. Now, I think it's not that specific, but back in the day, it was, so I don't remember why you incense up and down over it. I should know, but that's what the diagram says to answer your question. I should, have brought, I should have attached the diagram to it. It's pretty cool, um, because back in the day, you would have relics on the altars, too, so those would be incensed and all that. It was extraordinarily precise. And the number of swings was extraordinarily precise, too. So the question is, when you're serving, do you bow to the altar or to the tabernacle with a detached altar? And this is a detached altar. So think again, because you guys all know it, holy angels. Back in the day, the altar would have been pushed up against that high altar, right? The high altar is called a raridos, and then you would have an altar attached to it. And you would have had what's called a mensa. That's a table. And you would have celebrated Mass on the mensa. So that's an attached altar. This is a detached altar that's preferred now so that you can incense around it. With a detached altar, you genuflect to the tabernacle when you enter the sanctuary the first time and when you leave the sanctuary. You also genuflect when you open the tabernacle doors. Other than that, the altar is what you bow towards because this is, the, I think, their thought process. It is the altar which is the center of the mass, ultimately. I know that's weird to say because Jesus is literally right there, and I hope he does not strike me down. And if he does, then I got this wrong. But if he doesn't, maybe I'm right, maybe, maybe. The altar is the center of the mass insofar as the most holy sacrifice of the mass is going to happen on it. So that's why there's the emphasis on the altar. It, I know. Every impulse in your body, right, is like genuflects of the tabernacle. I know, I have the same thing. How? So the question, excellent question, by the way. How far back does incense go and, um, in terms of the tradition of incensing? And the answer to that is as far back as we know. Because if you look in Genesis, they're offering burnt offerings to God. And they're offering uh, grain offerings and frankincense and myrrh and all of these things. And these would have had sweet-smelling aromas. And they would have had an incense element. So it goes back as far as we know in worship. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Because way back in the day, these were nomadic people. These were, and then agrarian people. They were very earthy. And incense is very earthy. The imagery is easy to see. You literally watch the smoke go up. It's easy to say, oh, yeah, that's my prayer going up to God. And then you incense around something, and it marks it off. It consecrates it. Again, that's easy to recognize. It's easy to see. And then the sweet-smelling aroma, it's like virtue or, you know, love or heart. Your heart's going up to God. So it's a very earthy thing. It's a very human thing. It's a very Catholic thing. It's a very Jewish thing. Excellent question. Well done. Oh, that's a good question. Because that was a change, right? So back in the day, in 62, you would just come from the side. You'd come down to the foot of the altar. The procession, probably. So part of this gets into some complicated things I don't need to get into. But there was an emphasis in post-council. They wanted to, what I call, normatize the mass. So if you go back to the 62 Missal, the old traditional Latin mass, there were a lot of different masses. There's a Requiem Mass, there's a Pontifical High Mass, there's a Low Mass, there's a Misa Cantata, there's all of these different masses, and they all have different elements. The Study Group 10, who was in charge of sort of ref- applying um, the Second Vatican Council to the, to the new Missal, they didn't like that, they wanted to kind of standardize it, and so... Because in a high mass, if you had a pope, let's say in Rome, or a bishop, you would have a procession, my guess is they thought to themselves, well, let's just always have a procession so that you have this standard mass. And if it's only a lowly priest, especially if it's only a lowly parish priest, right, we'll still have a procession because it's just normative. That's my guess. There may have been a theological meaning. You could probably read something into Hebrews into it and the fact that, um, Paul in his letter to the Hebrews talks about how priests are called from among men, and I'm essentially walking in. Maybe that could be in there. That's a good question. It's always dangerous when you have Q&A, especially when it's recorded, because you may say, I don't know. (laughs) You know what you know, right? Yes. Yes, so there's two types of absolution. Sacramental absolution is what I give you in Confession. So you come to me, you confess your sins, and I say, God, the Father Almighty, etc. And then I say, I absolve you, think absolution, of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son, etc. That is sacramental absolution. I am using the power of the keys, they would say, right? The power that the Lord gave his disciples to forgive sins, which was then handed on to Archbishop Listecki, who then gave me the faculty. So I I can absolve sacramentally mortal and venial sins. That's sacramental absolution. The absolution which I give at Mass is not the same. It's not at the level of the absolution I give at confession. So think of confession absolution like way up here. The one at Mass is down here. The purpose of sacramental absolution and confession is to forgive mortal sins if needed and venial sins. The purpose of absolution at mass is simply to forgive your venial sins, so that you can approach the altar of God. So it's like if you need a deep cleansing, cleansing, you got to talk to me later. But if you just need, you know, to wash your hands, we're good to go. (laughs) It's the first image that popped into my mind. Go ahead. (laughs) Because you're not supposed to mix sacraments, right? So the sacrament of penance is its own thing, and the sacrifice of the Mass is its own thing. Now, we do sort of plop sacraments in, right? We have baptisms during Mass. We have weddings during Masses. But one of the sort of points of emphasis of the Second Vatican Council was the sacrament of confession is its own thing. And so if you need to go to confession, go to confession, and then get ready for Mass. Also, Think of something else. In order for me to give you sacramental confession, what must you do? Exactly. And, so back in the early church, there was, we do see this, there would be public declarations of sin. And you would do public penance for like 10 years. You, like, you would sit on a pillar and do penance, right? Maybe, you know, maybe I'll have to give somebody penance one day, right? Go stand on that pillar for 10 years. <laughs> but now, when there was the movement, largely through Irish monks towards private confession, the confession of your sins takes place, you know, between you and the priest. You don't have to publicly declare your conscience. That's another reason why you wouldn't give it. So the question was, um, in the th- option three of the penitentiary, you were sent to heal to try to our Lord, have mercy. There was some freelancing, and the question was whether that is licit. It actually is. It is licit. One of the funniest rubrics, and if you ever make this joke around seminarians, you'll be in the in crowd, is sometimes the rubrics say, "in these are similar words, and that's always, never give priests that option. Never, if you, if you ever write a liturgical book, never say, "in these are similar words, because we cannot be trusted, right? Um, but <laughs> with that option, there are some sample invocations that are in the back of the missile, but it does say you can sort of make up your, your own, and then it gives a guideline. It's like within reason, so... I think they have to be from Scripture, but even that is dangerous because I think our Lord said, come have breakfast, so I could, you know what I mean? It's never say these are similar words. That's the one thing you should learn from this series, never say that. So when I made the, uh, the dedication of the chapel, right, for Father Nathan, one of my rubrics says, greet the people and these are similar words, and he chuckled. I was so proud of myself. All right, I have time for one more question. You could memorize it. I would say during the Eucharistic prayer, you should definitely read. So you will notice, and I'll get to this when I talk about the Eucharistic prayer, during the words of consecration, I always read those right off the page because you have a right to know that I said the words correctly. It's the same when I baptize. When I get to the portion of the baptism, I read it off the page. When I sit in the confessional, when I say I absolve you, I read that off the page every time because I can't screw that up. And this way, you know that if someone ever said, well, how do we know that Kevin validly, Father Kevin validly baptized us? You would say, because he always read it off the page. That's my due diligence. That's what I, You guys have a right to receive the sacraments, and you have a right to know that your priest did it correctly. So I don't mess around much with that stuff. Um, you could memorize it. And there are parts of the Eucharistic prayer that I have memorized. Sometimes you'll notice I'm looking at the cross. Um, but usually I just read it right off the page. Otherwise, I'll actually use similar words. (laughs) No, these are similar. What's that? You should always assume that the priest is doing the right thing, but that's why I always read off him. Maybe after I've been celebrating Mass for 40 years, I would have a different response. (laughs) That's right. So, yes. All right. Well... We've reached time, so I will dismiss you and I'll give you a blessing. Thank you once again for coming. Next week, we'll talk about the reading of sacred scripture, the liturgy of the word, and I'll see how far we get with that. All right? The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.